week's TribCast, we'll talk about the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, State Representative Jonathan Stickland's departure from the Texas legislature, and what to expect of the Texans in the first presidential debate. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Lone Star College. Learn why over 99,000 students chose Lone Star College for affordable access to higher quality higher education. Nationally recognized, globally connected, locally focused. Learn more at lonestar.edu. And the Texas Association of Counties. Local government is great, not because it's government, but because it's local and connected to the people. Learn more at texascountiesdeliver.org. Do I have to talk you a Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, June 26, with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by political reporter Cassie Pollack. Hi, everyone. Hello. Uh, by our night news editor, Brandon Formby. Hi. Hey, Brandon. And by political editor, Amon Bathija. Hello. Hey, Amon. Uh, as always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can u- do that uh, using the hashtag Tribcast. Um, but before we start, listeners, I am asking for your help today to keep our relentless fact-based reporting on the migrant crisis going strong. Uh, you can donate now in any amount at texastribune.org give. We're trying to raise $35,000 to continue our coverage from both sides of the Texas-Mexico border. All right, um, on that topic, the migrant crisis on the southern border has really exploded back onto the scene in a huge way in the last week. It's just been headline after headline after headline, many of them edited uh, by Brandon Formby here. Uh, I want to break it down for our listeners, starting with what Donald Trump threatened last week um, regarding raids and then what really happened. So take us back uh, several days. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, initially um, word came out that the that ICE was going to be targeting uh, undocumented families in some of the country's biggest cities, um, and one of those included Houston, um, and that there were going to be um, on Sunday, um, you know, like raids or, or deportation sweeps. Um, and then on Saturday, um, you know, President Trump talked about it, um, and, you know, indicated it was going to happen, and then just a few hours later, Saturday afternoon, um, tweeted that he was going to hold off on them for two weeks um, to try and get Democrats and Republicans um, to the negotiating table to close what, or yeah, to close what he called uh, asylum and border loopholes. All right. So was it like he they didn't have their butts in gear to do this, or was this another sort of threat? You know, he has now like a history of putting out these threats and then pulling them back and giving you know. And it seems like everybody was sort of getting mobilized. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of people were getting mobilized. Um, I mean, what he was actually thinking, if it was just supposed to be a threat the whole time, I don't know. There was also speculation that, um, you know, the real reason it was called off, um, some people reported that um, it's because the, the raids got leaked in the first place. Um, right, which if you not, think about it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. law enforcement Is it really not called normally, a leak when uh, the president just tweets it? <laughs> yeah, right. um, so, right, I mean, you're not that, as effective if, like, everybody scatters because you've... Right. Right. Um, and so how so in this window of time between when Trump either leaked it or tweeted it and called it off, how did local authorities respond and how were like, you know, migrants on the ground responding? Um, so local authorities in Texas were a lot more um, muted about it than, um, you know, mayors and um, officials in other cities who came out very strongly. Um, just against the idea. I think what um, scared a lot of people, um, actual immigrants um, and other Texans is just the that, um, you know, Trump used the word families. 
Um, and that made people think it, you know, it, it was, you know, could include children or um, even just taking, you know, deporting um, the undocumented parents of, um, you know, children who are citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of uh, migrant advocacy groups who are, you know, trying to get out the word about what their rights are if, um, you know, ICE does come. Um, and then for families, um, we had a really great story from our new urban affairs reporter, Juan Pablo Garnum. Um, you know, for for families that have, you know, some of the members are undocumented immigrants and, you know, some of them are citizens, kind of had to have this, to make this decision on whether to have this conversation where, you know, they, they prepare the kids, you know, for mom and or dad, you know, just all of a sudden being gone one day. Um, or if, you know, trying to prepare them for that possibility is is more scarring than just, like, hoping it doesn't happen. Right. I mean, can you imagine having those kinds of conversations? I was thinking, like, you know, obviously being raised as lucky as I was, like, in utter privilege, the conversations I have with my parents are like, okay, here's where all the documents are about the inheritance, and, like, here's what to do if something happens to us, which is an awkward enough conversation with your parents when you live in this kind of environment. I, I mean, imagine having, especially, like, with younger kids, kids like here's how to take care of your little sister if mom like suddenly disappears anyway just that story was amazing um so okay meanwhile there's been this surge in reporting on the conditions in the facilities that are housing migrants and migrant kids in particular kids living in like truly unsanitary conditions sleeping outside drinking water that tastes like bleach you know moms hoarding their bottled water for formula these things are sort of happening concurrently. Talk a little bit about what's, you know, the reporting on these conditions and what we've been learning. Um, yeah, so just with so many people trying to cross the border right now, you know, most of them from Central America, um, it's just like record-setting numbers. Um, processing facilities and, and shelters, um, you know, where federal officials, you know, house these people, you, it's a lot of times typically only supposed to be for a couple of days. Um, have just been overwhelmed. Um, of course, like media can't get in. Um, we're limited to interviewing lawyers um, who are able to get in and talk to people in there. Um, and, you know, just uh, at shelters across the state, it's not just limited to one. Um, you know, there are stories of just, you know, people not getting the health care they need. Not There's not enough food. There you know, children who, you know, are just in a diaper and, you know, like a tank top that's filthy for days on end. God, I mean... I- it's hard for me to tell, like, if the situation has truly gotten worse or if we're suddenly just seeing this heightened surge of attention in the sort of news environment. But, like, we were hearing these messages from Donald Trump that, you know, over the sort of Mexican tariffs situation, he had really gotten Mexico to, like, crack down on its own southern border and that we were actually seeing fewer apprehensions potentially as a result. But that doesn't seem to, like, jibe with the n- numbers of people we're seeing across or at least in detention. I think one really telling moment was, I think it was Sunday, Michael McCall call congressman from texas has a lot of foreign policy experience um he's also in the trump era like a lot of republicans tends to be very careful about what he says and not wanting to get on trump's radar of of being too critical or anything and he said on sunday that it was the worst he's ever seen the conditions in there i mean so if he's and we're assuming this is somebody who's been on the ground Mm -hmm. you know a republican obviously saying that well i mean speaking of the the of McCall, what amount are the politics in Washington around this right now? Like, you know, obviously we saw uh, a vote in the House last night for s- some kind of relief. Where are we right now? So the House passed a $4.5 billion aid bill that includes um, some strings on uh, what the federal government 
has to do with uh, migrant children and these facilities. I know one of the strings is um, uh, if uh, private contractors could lose their federal license, federal contracts if they don't, you know, maintain a certain level of upkeep and care. Hygiene, basically. Right. right. And um, although a lot of those provisions were added in at the last minute to get um, the left wing of the Democratic Party to sign on hmm. uh, because they were uncomfortable with the bill because they felt a lot of it was essentially money going towards ICE and Homeland Security that could be used to further Trump's immigration agenda. Right. Are you sort of rubber stamping, you know, yeah, by voting for this aid or this relief, mm -hmm. are you rubber stamping these institutions or this this policy? And is this kind of humanitarian crisis on the border being used to, to get other things that Congress wasn't willing to pass otherwise? Uh, and so uh, almost every Democrat in the House uh, supported it last night. A four didn't. Um, and uh, three Republicans voted for it. One of them was Will Hurd. So he was the only Texas Republican to back the bill. And then all the Texas Democrats backed the bill. Uh, so it passed last night. The Senate has a different bill that's coming up this afternoon for a vote. Uh, and it has um, almost $5 billion. And it's very similar, but it has a lot less restrictions on kind of how the federal government can use it. And um, on, you know, there aren't any new, there aren't many, as many new rules on like what, how they have to treat migrant children or migrants that they, that other than what they already are doing. And is there any sense of what this money will be used for? I mean, is this literally just, you know, to like add soap and diapers in these facilities or? There's been some like mis, you know, different answers on that, but a lot of it is going to be going to um, just, you know, improve the quality of care and uh, send more people down to those facilities. Got it. Um, so a story our reporter Alex Samuels wrote this week has received just like an insane amount of attention. I think more retweets than any story we've ever written uh, on the fact that people are leaving like diapers and toys outside of these uh, facilities, but that Border Patrol either won't or can't accept them. Um, Brandon, what do you know about that? Um, I mean, just what you said, <laughs> that, you know, um, people have been reading these stories where it's like there's not enough, you know, food and not, you know, enough clothes. Um, so they, you know, want to step in and, you know, help send um, things to these facilities. But uh, the federal policy is they don't accept donations. And so does that, it seems like it's a little bit of a political stunt, right? Like if you know that Border Patrol, it's a great photo op if you know that Border Patrol won't accept this stuff and you and there's, you bring stacks of diapers and stuff like that. But I mean, it's, it's federal law, right, Amon, that you're prohibited from, or they're prohibited? From what I understand, yeah. yes. And that's why uh, during the, this, you know, the crisis we were seeing last summer, uh, I think some facilities were accepting donations because those were private contractors. And I, I believe in some cases, and that might be why this has prompted more outrage because it, it's, I think some people are viewing it as like they're refusing and they used to allow it. And right. uh, it's, it's com coming across as the decision to not accept donations is politically motivated when we're actually talking about different facilities. Right. Um, I mean, Cassie, before any of the weekend's big news, we got an announcement from state leaders. Um, what propelled them to get involved? They basically said, you know, they want to send 1,000 National Guard troops down. How's that going to make a difference potentially in any of this? Yeah, the state's, uh, the state's top three political leaders, the Governor Greg Abbott, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and House Speaker Dennis Bonas, men at... Ugh tongue-tied, Dennis, Dennis Bonin met at the Capitol and they convened this press conference and they said, hey, we are sending a thousand extra Texas National Guard troops down to the border, which roughly doubles the number of uh, Texas troops currently stationed along the border. And oh, by the way, this is on you, Congress. This is, uh, you know, the reason why we're all here is because Congress 
uh, has refused to fix this problem. So it's kind of a, you know an announcement about the, the troops getting sent down to the border and then also just kind of an opportunity uh, to kind of shine the light on Congress and maybe the inaction that's been happening up there and uh, I guess up until this uh, vote, the humanitarian aid package. But Anyway, uh, you know, Governor Greg Abbott said that the feds are going to be repaying the state 100% of the cost that's incurred, um, and then that these extra troops that are getting sent down to the border are going to be helping at these, um, you know, short-term facilities for adult and uh, for single adult migrants, and then also helping, um, you know, border patrol units along these stations at the border. So. Um, yeah, that that kind of I guess got overlooked Over, or overlooked or, in the middle. Of right, all of it this, happened right. Friday afternoon, and then quickly the Trump uh, news and the mm-hmm. raids kind of quickly set into motion. So, um, anyway, yep. well, uh, one I mean the, maybe the single biggest headline out of all of this actually came uh, last night, Tuesday night. Um, Brandon, you were at the helm when this landed. I think of a a photo that the AP published um, that has just gotten a ton of, of national and international attention. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, there was, um, it, it was originally published in um, a Mexico newspaper, um, but it's a photo of the bodies of a um, young father and his 23-month-old daughter um, just face down in the Rio Grande. Um, they, you know, had tried to cross... Um, the reports were that he tried to cross at a port of entry to seek asylum. Um, he's from Guatemala um, and that could not, um, you know, was blocked from trying to seek asylum from crossing um, at a port of entry and decided to swim. Um, and then um, while they were, you know, trying to cross that way, they um, both drowned. Um, and then the photo is, you know, of their bodies face down with the uh, young daughter's arm around her dad. She's like almost tucked into. She's like tucked into his tank top or shirt, as if you know he was basically trying to keep her on his back. It's just like totally, and and it's really brought more attention to these you know questions around the policies of how long folks are fo- forced to wait before they can seek asylum in the United States. So it's just been uh, unbelievable amount of attention. Uh, a question coming in um, from uh, State Representative Terry Mesa. Um, what is the role of the Texas Health and Human Services Commission in investigating and auditing uh, these facilities in our state? I actually don't know. Does anyone know offhand the question? We may need to go back and dig into that. Um, I think there's been, a, a, HHSC has played a role in some of the, like, the state-based contractors, but I'm not sure on the federal level. I don't, it's, I don't it's think them. they have any oversight over them. All right, well, we're going to get back. We will get back to you mm-hmm. on it and we'll report back sooner than next week's uh, <laughs> TripCast. All right, y'all, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Houston First, art, tourism, entertainment, conventions, hospitality, Houston First. More at HoustonFirst.com. And Legislative Solutions, whose online Texas lobby guide brings a wealth of information about Texas lobbyists to your phone, tablet, or computer. More at LegislativeSolutionsInc.com. Uh, okay, Cassie, we've probably spent um, far too much airtime on this podcast talking about Jonathan Stickland, uh, the Bedford Republican who's been a real um, bomb thrower in recent sessions at the Texas legislature. Why are we talking about him this week? Well, on Monday, uh, Representative Stickland announced that he is not going to be seeking re-election to Texas House District 92. Um, you know, there had been a rumor floating around the Capitol here and there just throughout session about, oh, is, is Stickland actually going to run, run for re-election? You know, is he coming back? And, um, you know, up until Monday and up until his announcement, he had said, of course, I'm going to be back. You know, I can't wait to be back, you know, fighting for liberty, fighting for freedom. Just last week, I think he was using the hashtag like stuck with Stickland on Twitter. <laughs> That's good. 
Uh, Short-lived. <laughs> so basically he says that he's, you know, going out on his own terms, which I think some people would could argue uh, against. But, you know, he wants to spend more time with family, spend more time at his job, uh, spend more time, you know, at his church. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, you already have a, a, a quickly forming field uh taking shape to to replace him. Any um, names we already know of or know about? Well, uh, so in 2018, you know, <laughs> Stickland came within three, almost three, nearly three percentage points of losing. And, you know, he chalks that up to just a fluke election cycle. But the Democrat who nearly unseated him is, is uh, running again for the seat. Um, you know, the Republican that I think Stickland would like to see replace him announced around 24 hours after Stickland, Stickland's retirement announcement that he himself was running for the seat. And then, you know, there are um, at least a, a couple or a few Republican uh, names kind of floating around for, uh, you know, possibly throwing their hat into the ring. Um, you know, the seat is definitely a, a target for Democrats. You know, they were quick. Especially uh, considering how close they got last time around. Right. Yeah, being right. in North Texas. Yeah. Right. Being in North Texas, um, you know, the this Texas Democratic Party, you know, had a statement out after the announcement, you know, saying that, uh, you know, Stickland and other Texas Republicans could see the writing on the wall and, you know, that that was that this was kind of Stickland's exit ramp um, for that. Um, you know, Stickland, of course, is maintaining that, you know, a Republican's going to hold the seat come 2020 and and this and that. Um, so anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if if we thought the session was boring this year <laughs> with Jonathan Stickland in it, Amon, what's the Texas House going to be like without Jonathan Stickland? <laughs> so, um I am not sure about this. Maybe he'd correct me, but I, I think I might have been the first reporter to ever interview him, or one of the first. Wow! When, as, as a candidate, he was a candidate in the Texas House for the Texas for the ninety-two district, and um, Todd Smith was the incumbent. And I I was working for the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and it was just at some like candidate fair where I met him and talked to him really briefly, and didn't think I think I quoted him, but I don't I didn't think much of it because Todd Smith was widely seen as winning re-election. Uh, and then Todd Smith decided to run for state Senate and he lost. And suddenly Stickland was like the most well-known candidate in the race. Um, and even, even at the start of that session, I remember like, you know, he was a freshman. He wasn't getting, no one was really thinking much of him, but by the end of the session, like everyone knew who he was because he had just, he was, he was the bomb thrower even back then. He was going to the back mic in the house constantly and criticizing the, how the house was being run and, complaining, you know, asking pointed questions about bills that other members weren't really willing to ask. And um, so I think it's going to be a very different house without him. Is there anyone logical to be the next big bomb thrower? I mean, like, I feel like every session there's someone who every time they get up to the back mic, you're like, oh, here we go again. (laughs) Who's that person now? I mean, it was Stickland right, all, so all year long. Um, Cassie, you, you watched the house, Cassie, a lot more than I did this <laughs> session. So, I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, I think second to Stickland in terms of who was a bomb thrower, you know, was the Freedom Caucus, which Stickland himself was a part of up until the end of this regular legislative session. Um, you know, but you saw them take a much more measured and, uh, you know, laid back at least in the sense that, uh, you know, what the public saw uh, approach to how they decided to to legislate and negotiate the session. So, I mean, there, you know, really was uh, no, but no one else, a couple feisty freshmen on the democratic side who were swept in with, you know, the 2018 elections. Um, maybe we'll see more of that come, mm-hmm. come 2020, mm-hmm. you know, as people start to find their voice and as they're reelected for a second term. Yeah, I think it'll depend a lot on which party is controlling the house. Right. 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 
Uh, all right, well, one other, some other um, big House-related news. Uh, Joe Strauss, a former House Speaker, has a new pack. Cassie, tell us about it and what it could mean. Yeah, uh, former Texas House Speaker Joe Strauss, a San Antonio Republican, announced this morning that he's launching a new political action committee, and he's infusing, uh, let me make sure I'm getting the number right, $2.5 million uh, from his old campaign account into this new uh, action committee. And, you know, um, it's... Uh, giving off just early early appearances that it's going to be closely aligned with you know how he led the house and the values and you know his his style of uh, leadership was um, more aligned with the centrist faction of the GOP um, fiscal conservatism over you know serious right, social right issues. I think uh, I think his news release refers to it as thoughtful conservatism. Right. Conservatism. Yes. Um, I guess the thing that as opposed to those <laughs> unthoughtful conservatives, right? Um, I guess the thing to kind of keep in mind here, or, or was interesting to me, is you know this announcement this morning uh, is basically keeping Strauss's name in the political arena, um, not just for the 2020 election cycle, which I imagine you know if there's 2.5 million dollars in this uh, campaign account, you know there will be some sort of role to be played in these, uh, you know. Uh, Races, but also it's been suggested that you know uh, this new political action committee is a is a gateway or a signal that Strauss intends to run for higher office himself as early as twenty twenty two. Right, twenty twenty two is uh, then you know the date or the year that people um, are are looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, I'm in, you know in in uh, in exit interviews that Strauss did after he announced that he was going to be retiring in twenty seventeen. You know he never uh, he never. I guess, said that he would never run for higher office. He always kind of left that door open. So there's always lots of speculation that he might at some point. Yeah. Right, right. So this is just, I guess, a continuation of that and maybe the most, uh, you know, striking example or, or thing that we've mm-hmm. seen to date that, you know, he could be serious about doing that in the future. And so is it, when you have a pack like this and you have $2.5 million in it, is the point that you spend that money helping other candidates get elected or that you use this as a fundraising vehicle and, you know, uh, for your own aims? I mean, like, what do you, what do you do with it? Yeah. Um, I think both of those things. Uh, it's still unclear whether this political action committee is going to be wading into primary races come March. And it's also unclear uh, whether it's whether the group's just going to be supporting exclusively Republican candidates. Um, it didn't say one way or the other. Right. It didn't it, say yeah. one way. You know, again, this was just announced this morning. Strauss said in a supported emails uh, this morning with the announcement that, you know, there's going to be more news and more updates uh, coming down the pipe as obviously election uh, season continues to heat up. So I'm sure we'll have some sort of certainty, uh, you know, I, and if he doesn't announce it himself, we'll be able to tell uh, on campaign finance reports mm-hmm. what uh, the vision and what the game plan is here. So the options in 2022 are not uh, limitless. I mean, what could he do, Amon? Uh, he could run for U.S. Senate. Oh, wait, no, he can't. <laughs> uh, let's see, Senate, how many, so is, is governor the only option? Uh, lieutenant governor. Yeah, the all, well, all governor, governor, lieutenant governor, land commissioner. Yeah, all, well. all the statewide, but U.S. Senate. Um, right, so he's not going to run for land commissioner. Let's, like, we can cross <laughs> things out. He's not going to run for land commissioner. I, he's not going to run for lieutenant governor. I mean, I think governor would be the only option. I mean, I think it would depend on what other Republicans are running for what. If there are no Senate opportunities, I think it, that seems like a, you know, only there's only one option. Whatever he does, he has to figure out a path to win the Republican primary. So yeah. I think, I mean, I think if he 
if he were to look at governor, he'd have to be seriously thinking, is Abbott running for re-election? Mm-hmm. Is, if, who is Abbott's kind of preferred successor? Because I'm guessing it's not Joe Strauss. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, Railroad that, I mean, that's commissioner. just the thing. Rail, oh, right, definitely. Railroad you, you go back to the 2017 uh, legislative sessions and, you know, it was but the dynamic between the big three was definitely, uh, well, I shouldn't say definitely, at times was an Abbott, uh, a Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick side versus the Strauss side, and that was just kind of uh, a product of, um, you know, Strauss championing some more centrist Republican, you know, he would call them pragmatic approaches, and then you had on the other side, uh, you know, more two figures who were kind of embodying like more socially conservative. That was like the session of dueling press conferences. Like Strauss would call one, and then like five minutes later, Patrick would call one. We running across the Capitol. Exactly. Well, all right, so we can keep tabs on this pack. What's it called? Texas Forever Forward. Texas Forever Forward. Yes, I needed Which to look back down to make sure I was getting that right. It's a tongue twister. You reminds know. me of yearbook themes. Uh, that was like, probably, in high school. That when was we used probably to, your yearbook theme. Were no, you the editor of the yearbook? I was. Were you that, really? Yes, no wonder you're so good on these themes. Texas Forever That's why it, it like triggered memories. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, All right, well, Amon, let's head out to presidential land where we've got the first of two Democratic debates tonight um, with this exceedingly, exceedingly crowded field. (laughs) Uh, What do we know about where Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke, our Texans in the race, uh, are playing? They are both in Florida, and they've both been for a couple of days now. Uh, They are going to be debating tonight, along with eight others. Uh, Friday, uh, tomorrow night is kind of seen as more of the front runners night. That's got Joe Biden. That's got Bernie Sanders. The Thursday night debate is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, tonight, uh, Elizabeth Warren is the most, is the one polling the highest of the people tonight. Uh, for virtually everyone else on that stage, their their goal is to stand out and find a way to like get people to suddenly say, okay, I'll back that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and O'Rourke and Castro are kind of really in similar situations. O'Rourke started you know, much higher when he got into the race, but his polling has dropped so much that he's only slightly ahead of Castro in a lot of polls. They're both about one or 2% each. Um, and the, kind of the one notable thing, kind of the boost that Castro got just yesterday was um, back in April, he put out an immigration plan. He, I believe he was the first candidate to do so. And in it, he called for decrim- decriminalizing border crossing, illegal border crossings. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elizabeth Warren yesterday announced she was also backing that. And when she announced, she said, I agree with Julian Castro. Wow, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, 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 I back this now too. I mean, given the national conversation, it's all but certain that he'll try to stick out and, you know, claim, mm-hmm. you know, look, I was the first to da 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 Right. Um, what kind of leg does Beto have to stand on there given, you know, obviously coming from a border community? And- I mean, as, as he ran in for Senate and is running for president, he's been talking a lot about the border. On that issue, though, he actually has um, said he doesn't agree with that approach. Mm-hmm. He's, he's expressed concerns about um, trafficking and other, ish- other areas where um, if you were to decriminalize it, you wouldn't be able to enforce, uh, you know, certain other aspects of policing the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, for Castro and O'Rourke, I, I imagine there's going to be a lot of um, kind of <laughs> dueling over who's the, who, cares, who knows the border better and who right. knows what's best for the border. Right. I mean, how much are they set up tonight as competitors versus two people who are sort of on the same team just trying to get noticed? You know, we've been covering them both so much because they're the two Texans. But I think for the national audience, no one's going to see that as two Texans. I think they're just among the other ten Right. And uh, really, Elizabeth Warren and the other nine. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Castro and in his immigration platform is that because he is Hispanic, he 
gets asked a lot of questions that white candidates don't. Um, and Alexa had just a fantastic... Um, Our colleague Alexa Ura, yeah. ...profile of him that's like a must-read. Yeah, that really goes deep on a lot of the questions he gets asked on the trail that you just are like, make your eyes pop open. And what's interesting is in a lot, like, in my head, I'm, in presidential debates, there's there's always that section about immigration. They often bring out the Hispanic moderator out, right. to ask that one question and then they walk away. Um, I would be I would be really surprised if they don't lead with immigration tonight, given how... Oh, I don't know how they couldn't, especially, I mean, yeah, the attention around the picture and the, you know... Which the, gives, you know, Castro and our work a real opportunity possibly their best opportunity of the night to really stand out. Right. Um, well, Brandon was just talking about having our uh, reporter Alexa Ura in the field with Julian Castro. Our colleague Patrick Svitek has been on the road with Beto, who's been sort of pounding the pavement in Florida, releasing some different policy stances. What What's the latest from uh, O'Rourke's camp? Uh, I think I saw a policy on veterans issues this week. They, they did one on veterans issues this week. Um, they've also, th in the past few weeks, they've put some out on climate change um, and... Um, I'm bringing a couple of the others, but they've been they've been trying to get you know a lot of uh, national attention for their policy rollouts. It's been really kind of hard for them. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren has become known as the woman, you know, the candidate with the most policy proposals. Mm -hmm. She's the one with the plans. Um, in fact, I've been kind of surprised how Castro has kind of like carved a niche for himself and gotten more attention because he's released some policy plans that are kind of. Um, more narrow and like he's done one on police brutality right and he's done one on and pretty specific right. right and he's done one on um lead uh, removing lead from homes and mm -hmm. stuff and so that's it's it's there he's found a way to kind of help him help stand out but it's still not clear if national audiences don't seem to really be picking up on that yet yep. well and a lot of candidates have made housing affordability they're making that part of their platform which is an end for him considering he you know is a former housing secretary right sure, um, all right. Well, one more question on uh, 2020 while we're on the subject. So uh, regarding the race to succeed John Cornyn in the U.S. Senate, um, Aman, I saw a new name on the Democratic side this week, uh, Royce West. I feel like there's been a lot of back and forth and like gamesmanship and evasion here. What's going on? S several weeks ago, in the, towards kind of towards the tail end of the session, we were hearing that Royce West was seriously looking at running for Senate, which surprised everyone I heard about because who, who everyone I talked to about it, they all just seemed kind of stunned. Because, we also asked him specifically during the legislative session and he like repeatedly told us no. Yeah, that too. But then we were hearing from other people, no, he's talking to people and they were, they were hearing very different stories from him privately. Um, very recently, he's now become more public about it and saying, I'm looking at um, the race and I should decide by next month. Next month. All right. And so uh, tell me a little bit about who's already confirmed in that race and what it might look like on the Democratic side. Uh, MJ Hager is the most well-known candidate by far. She uh, she ran last cycle for um, uh, Congress and lost, but lost in a race that when she got in, no one thought she had a chance and she ended up losing only by a few points. So she really narrowed um, the field in that district. Uh, so now she's running statewide instead of running for that seat again. Uh, and she's a former Air Force pilot and... Uh, you know, put out this biographical video that just went viral and got millions of views. So she she kind of made a national name for herself. Um, it's unclear how well she's known Texas by, by Texas voters statewide, though. Got it. All right. Well, that would be an interesting matchup if there was one. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Lone Star College, the Texas Association of Counties, Legislative Solutions, and Houston First, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. Also, a reminder on our crowdfund on the border crisis going on now, you can donate at texastribune.org give. 
On behalf of Aman, Brandon, Cassie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk you